I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die historic on the Fury Road. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. We're hunted by scavengers and haunted by Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 3, which begins with Max beating a hasty retreat from the band of war boys that have shown up. And it ends with Max dazed and disoriented after having been involved in a rollover. Rounding out the week with us is the guy who drew two-thirds of 2018's MCU movies. That's Mark Sexton. Hello, how are you? And I'm feeling very dazed and confused myself. <laughs> Although that is a natural state of being. Sorry. <laughs> Unless your IMDb page is leading me astray, which honestly, it's done that in the past. You were the storyboard artist on Black Panther and that other one that I can't remember. As I used to call it, the insect film. Yeah, Ant-Man and the Wasp. There we go. Oh, wow. I, I saw both of those in the theater. You think I would have remembered them? <laughs> Well, you know, they they're Marvel of, films. They, they kind blend. of got overshadowed by that one at the end of the year. <laughs> and they were interesting films to work on, but yes, not as much fun as Fury Road, which is apparently what we're talking about today. Yes, we are. When we wrapped on Wednesday, Max was driving away. And when we come back today, he continues to drive away. And he's leaving behind a funny little dust cloud. And we sit there for, I'm not exactly sure how many seconds, because usually I do my due diligence and I write down exactly how long these quiet beats last. But the shot we're looking at lasts from one second to 17 seconds. And I don't know exactly when the Citadel boys drop in, but we sit there long enough that you're like, okay, I guess Max just decided it was time to leave in a hurry because nothing seems to be happening. And then with a roar, these vehicles show up and they are full of hooping and hollering guys that are painted head to toe in white and they're waving these things around and they don't seem like good guys is what I'm getting at. They remind me of something that happened to me on my drive home from work the other day. I was driving down the road. We live out in the middle of nowhere, so it was a dark country road, twisty and turny and hilly and dark. And this car pulls up behind me and is upset with me that I'm not going fast enough. I'm behind somebody who's not going fast enough, so I have no choice. And he is tailing me, and he's flashing his lights at me. And it comes time for me to turn into our road. I'm like, I'm not going home. I don't want this person to know where I live. So I keep driving until he pulls off into his driveway. I think that the guy following me, flashing his lights and tailing me, was like these guys. They're just out for a good time. The proto-war boy. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. He was just entertaining himself on his drive home with someone who was going like one mile under the speed limit. And just out of interest, how much further did you drive before you got rid of him? Please um, say it was about 10 or 11 kilometers. Miles. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a woman growing up in America, you know what to do if you think you're being followed. You drive to the police station. So the police station was on the same road, probably three or four miles down the road. Give or take. So that's where I was going. And somewhere between my road and the police station, he pulled off into his driveway. But it was dark, so I don't know. I should have paid more attention to where he pulled off so that I would know who it was. 
So then Julia calls me from the road and she's like, from the parking lot of the police station, this guy is following me and I don't want to come back. And she's explaining the situation to me. And I'm sitting here thinking, Oh boy, (laughs) do I need to pull the shotgun out from underneath the bed and intimidate some stranger because he's following my wife. And I'm not saying I wouldn't have done it, but I'm like, Uh, I've got to put on shoes so I can go outside like, oh, no, it would have been better without shoes. <laughs> <laughs> but the underpants would have been a good idea. Yes. Some sort of Walter White from Breaking Bad situation, a half-tucked-in, buttoned-down shirt, combat boots, whitey tighties, and a shotgun. What are you doing on my land, boy? <laughs> we're not that far out in the sticks. Well, we're not that far. Out the <laughs> Just to get off my lawn. Yeah. Get off my lawn. Sounds fabulous. So I get the feeling from these guys that they're out on some reconnaissance mission or a retrieval of food or something, hunting something, that they're not out there looking for Max. They just happen to see Max and we're like, ooh, let's go bother him. Mm -hmm. That looks like fun. You imagine that when you're in an Immortan Joe situation, you've got this gigantic army of war boys, you need to find a way to keep them entertained on a day-to-day basis. So it makes sense to me, at least, that he would organize these little search and raiding parties so that they say, okay, go out, do a circuit, look for any people wandering around, because this is still a society that is reincorporating and rearranging aspects of the old world. They're not creating a new Detroit where they're churning out raw materials into cars. They're still taking bits and pieces and reincorporating them. That's true. Part of their society are still scavengers. Mm -hmm. Like they do grow things at the Citadel. So they are creating things, but we saw no mining or smelting processes. So all of their materials, all their machinery, and we see a lot of really impressively scaled machinery and contraptions, all that scavenge. Now, Mark, as you were putting together the comic book, you gave us a bit of a sneak peek at Gastown and the Bullet Farm. And these are, I guess, uh, the compound from Road Warrior and Barter Town on steroids, respectively, is how I would describe them. Pretty much. I mean, you're trying to find a way of actually making these things feel as realistic and as rational as possible. The Citadel was supposed to be something left over from the Water Wars an aquifer that was being tapped and then became a military installation that at some point, obviously, Morton Joe got his hands on or something like that. And then we have Gastown, which was an old, essentially very much like a large version of the compound from Road Warrior with a lot more of an industrial base behind it. So writ large, but mm-hmm. with the procedures to render down oil into all its useful components as opposed to just part of it. They're not just trying to make fuel. They're trying to make lots and lots of stuff. And the bullet farm is another thing again. I don't think we've shown that anywhere yet. But if in the glorious scheme of things, something else happens with Mad Max in the future, we may see how that works. So I can't really talk about that. (laughs) We did include one picture of the bullet farm in the comic. And I'm going to pass that over to you, Julia, so you can see it. And it looks like a strip mine. Sort yes. of a large pit going down into the ground. And I love the way that you've got the Citadel, which has these three large pillars. You've got Gastown, which is this 
giant pile of pipes surrounded by a moat of just oily sand. And then you've got the bullet farm, which is the, uh, I guess, opposite profile to Gastown. You can almost take one and flip it over and put it into the other. Yes. In fact, there you go. I hadn't even thought about that. (laughs) I'm so clever, apparently. I don't realize when I'm being clever, which is the story of my life. I think that was the basic idea. George definitely wanted the idea of realistic ways of actually making elements that could be used in a military industrial, post-apocalyptic military industrial complex. But using old methodology to make things like, you know, the bullet farms obviously making gunpowder. And this whole idea of there being body farms there and the use of human urine and sulfur and stuff like that. So it's an old lead mine. And I think lead mines usually come hand in hand with sulfur deposits and stuff like that, which is obviously what you use to make gunpowder. So there's lots of ideas behind how these things worked. But um, anyway, I won't talk about that anymore because I'll get <laughs> shot. There's a sniper at this moment who, uh, if it's not a Marvel sniper, it's George's sniper. He does have one, so um, yeah, I'll shut up now. <laughs> well, you think of the layperson who has never watched a Mad Max movie before, and they're looking at this situation where Max is just one guy with one car, and he's being chased by a tow truck, a couple of pursuit cars, a few motorcycles. All of these raiders are focusing all of this energy and resource just tracking down one guy, and you've got to remind that sort of person that, like, you can't just go out to your local Ford dealer and pick up a new ute on the weekend because your old one is too rusty and burnt out. You've got to go out and find people driving these vehicles and take them from those folks. And so all of this effort, it makes sense. And then, of course, you introduce the idea of Gastown and the Bullet Farm, and you can hand wave away, oh, well, where are they getting their gas? Well, they're getting their gas from Gastown. Why, why do they using all these bullets. I thought they were using bows and arrows. It's like, no, you've got the bullet farm. These essential elements that people need, gas, ammunition, and food and water are covered by this little triumvirate that Joe has set up with his lieutenants. And it sets aside all of those little worries so that we can have a proper adventure story. In a society, when your basic needs are met, when you have enough food and water and you have enough shelter and security, The next thing on the list is breeding. That's when you start having larger and larger families and kids actually manage to grow up to an age where then they have children. So that is the point of reestablishing society that we are at. It's just that we're at a very twisted version of that point in reestablishing society. And it's funny, when you have a group or organization, and I'm thinking back to Road Warrior, I know we keep calling back to it, but we're going to Keep calling back to the first three movies this entire season. If that bothers you, I'm sorry. (laughs) We spent the last two years talking about them. We're going to keep talking about them because the way we look at it, it's one giant hole and it all fits together. But when you look at organizations of people, when all of their needs are met, that's when drama happens. You think of Humongous's horde, they were all completely loyal to the Humongous. They were following him to the ends of the earth because he was the only way that they were going to get food, water, and resources. You look inside the compound, they had food, they had water, they had resources, and you had little arguments popping up between Papagallo and the other survivors. Names that I haven't thought about in a long time. Big Rebecca. Exactly. Big Rebecca woman. standing up and saying, hey, 
we should give up. And he's like, no, we shouldn't give up. They have the luxury to disagree because they have those resources at hand. So in order for us to have the story of Joe and his wives, well, they need to have food, they need to have water, they need to have protection. If they're comfortable, there can be drama. Thinking back to Thunderdome as well, with Auntie and Bartertown, once Bartertown was established and had a strong reputation, only then did Auntie feel like she could move forward without Master Blaster. Mm -hmm. Thus creating the ability to have conflict. Yeah, it's good stuff. Sounds good to me. You guys have thought about this much more than I have. Oh. (laughs) Thank God you're here. You have no idea. (laughs) As we're following this pursuit group chasing down Max, we are introduced to what I have determined is a war boy's favorite weapon. I think they're called thunder sticks. That's the idea. I was watching the special features on the Fury Road Blu-ray, and they're just long poles with petrol-filled, I think, soda cans with a little igniter tip on the end and you just throw them at something and it explodes. And I love the idea of this weapon. As you guys were going through the storyboarding process, how did these crazy out of the blue weapons come to be? That's just something that just comes out of the process of you're sitting down, you're trying to figure out how you would make something that was believable. When we were storyboarding, we were really trying to harken back to Road Warrior about how everything was made of found objects, but in this case, they're all repurposed. And one of the things that's famous in Australian history is the idea of, and I think you've mentioned it before in your podcast, the Anzacs, Anzac Day, and the idea of the World War I Australian soldiers. And one of the things they had to do was they had to make homemade grenades, and they used jam tins mm. packed with a small amount of explosive and then, you know, coins and all sorts of um, shrapnel. Um, homemade shrapnel, you know, coins and screws and all sort of stuff. And then the idea was, well, how do you deliver something like that in a way that would be useful in a situation where something's driving or moving really fast? Because throwing a jam tin is not terribly aerodynamic. Give it more force, so then you go, well, put it on the edge of a spear. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit like what they use when they go fishing for a large fish that may be shark-like. And you don't want to have some idiot pull a shark onto a boat where everyone's standing there because that usually goes poorly. So they have what's come uh, what they're called a power head or something like that, which is like a detonating cap on the end of a stick. Mm-hmm. Before you pull the shark in, you hit on the head and it goes off in the shark's brain, kills the shark, and then you can pull on the boat. So this is the idea of how do you use that with vehicles? Mm-hmm. So that sort of stuff comes out. And that's a really good idea of how the, uh, the creative process have a, had a really strong logic behind it, trying to make sure that everything had a function. Yeah. That's really what, we, that's really what George is very big on. So, Thundersticks. And I love its inclusion because when you're watching Road Warrior and you're watching Beyond Thunderdome, you're watching these guys struggle to disable other vehicles. They're coming up with the little wrist-mounted crossbows trying to shoot out tires and getting pulled underneath the tires and run over and it's such a hassle and you're watching these guys struggle so hard and it's nice to see that over time the wastelanders have adapted their strategies they've realized hey people are starting to pack their tires with rags and things that are not air and so if you pierce a tire it's not going to deflate the same way it used to we saw on the interceptor that there's some sort of packing in that back tire that was close. It's like, I think the tread was tied to the rim and then it was packed with material around Mm. the rim. Mm -hmm. 
And so if you can't pop a tire to slow a car, well, maybe uh, an explosive coming up behind the car will throw it into a roll and then you can drag it home, which is exactly what these war boys do. And they do it magnificently. Mm -hmm. It's not the first time that Max has been involved in a horrific rollover in the Interceptor, except this time, instead of having his windshield bashed in by a tailpipe, it's this explosion. And I was watching yet another behind-the-scenes video, and the guy driving the car here is none other than Guy Norris, who people probably remember from his cartwheeling motorcycle stunt, where he didn't quite jump high enough and broke, I think, both of his legs? Yep. Yep. So what they did is they put a giant paddle. It sort of looked like a giant metal fly swatter to me, but they installed it on the bottom of the car, and he was driving in one direction, and he hit the button, and the paddle swung down and threw the car into the air, and it rolled a lot. (laughs) Yeah, if you're going to take that interceptor out, you've got to do it properly. Yeah. Yeah, it really is a very impressive crash. It is definitely helped along by the sandiness and the dustiness of the environment. Mm -hmm. It just explodes with this dust cloud. And I love how you go from the explosion and the roll and the dust cloud, and then there's a very hard-to-see cut between the car rolling in the distance and it's sliding to a stop so that we can see Max crawling out of it. I'm not exactly sure where the cut is or how the dust exactly works. It kind of reminds me of back in 2014, the movie Birdman with Michael Keaton, where they did the whole thing as if it was one long cut, but they used clever editing and effects to make it look like they weren't stopping and starting again. I've never seen Birdman. Mm -hmm. Never seen it. So I don't know what you're talking about. But I do watch West Wing obsessively. And Aaron Sorkin is known for his long shots. And one thing that he does to help him out with those long shots is he makes cuts using like a person, like a random person, not someone that they're focused on, just another actor walking in front of the camera, basically doing a wipe. Or he'll use a door jam doing the same thing. So clever editing can make things look very, very different than reality. Yes, it's all Alfred Hitchcock's fault. I think I think he was the first one to try and do a film seemingly without cuts when he did Rope. And he did all that, you know, except the cameras were enormous. And <laughs> yeah. those cameras around would have been fun. Same technique. Anyway, so yes, George wanted this whole thing to actually feel like one big shot, but I think it was just a little bit difficult, perhaps. Not quite in control of how that car was going to land. Yeah. Anyway. It certainly worked out in the final edit, having the car sliding on the roof. And as Max climbs out of that window, we get a little bit of double exposure, the shakiness and double vision, which is exactly what we saw back in Road Warrior. So we know that if you want to have a double exposure, double vision aspect, just throw Max in a car, roll him a couple of times, and that's just his natural reaction. Yeah is that he's going to be a little double vision E. Except this time when it happens, Max is still in a state of hallucinating these voices. Mm. They started up a few moments ago, and they haven't stopped. So he's experienced this crash, and he's hallucinating. We get a return of the Max voiceover, and he says, I am the one who runs from both the living and the dead, hunted by scavengers, as we've seen in this minute and haunted by those I could not protect, which is exactly why I was talking on Wednesday, oh, this has got to be glory, because 
as soon as he says, those I could not protect, we see the little girl and she's being chased down by this group of vehicles, which we're going to recognize at one point as Joe's horde, which is the one reason why I had to ask the question. Because the little girl is run down by the Giga Horse, she's not run down by a buzzard truck. Therein lies the problem of working with George. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Continuity, what's that? Okay, right, whoops. <laughs> uh, yes, George throws those shots in and you just go, hang on, George, we just spent however long drawing these comics? Okay, so mm, use all the tools you've got. Yeah. And then mix it up. <laughs> so let's just say it may be um, more symbolic mm-hmm. as opposed to actual fates of particular characters, perhaps, or yeah. foreshadowing of something to come. Also, as we're seeing these hallucinations, they're very quick. The first hallucination of the girl being run over starts at 55 seconds, 13 frames. A matter of frames later at 56.03, we get a flash, which is a close-up with a blue filter of just her eyes, which we're going to see later on in the Citadel. And then we flash again to her falling underneath the vehicles. And all of that happens in the matter of a single, I think, second and five frames. Like, it's very quick. Like, if you're just watching it normally and you don't click through frame by frame, it'll be very easy to miss the transition there of how they're changing between the different shots. But they work. Oh, yeah. Every time something like that happens in my notes, I put in brackets the word flash because it's flashing very quickly and it's very easy to miss. It's one of those things that makes Fury Road just have a ton of cuts. Big time. I go through and every time the camera cuts, I'd make a note of exactly what's happening in that shot, how long it is and what's happening. It's a lot of work, but Hey, it's a resource that I'll have. (laughs) And it's a resource that I have too. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm sure there's people out there who will delight in having that from you when you're finished. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Shim will have that one. I feel for you. That's, that's a lot of cuts. I think George said this about 15 or 1600. That feels about right. Something enormous, as opposed to like Road Warrior, which is probably only a few hundred. I think what the sheer amount of cutting in this movie does is it lends itself well to the frantic kinetic energy of the film. Because I forget who says it, but someone in the behind the scenes said that there are two parts of this movie. There's the chase and the race. And when your movie is built out of those two things, you need to make sure that even in those points where you're stopped, that you're not fully still. Okay, it'll be interesting to remember that throughout our analysis of the movie, Mm -hmm. to note the nature of the stillness when we do see it. Are we actually still, or is it just an illusion? I mean, we are going to see scenes of people not moving around, but just because they're not physically moving doesn't mean there's not emotional and mental turmoil. Yes. Yeah, big time. George think, likes his emotional mental trauma and he likes the film to build. Yeah, I think these first couple of minutes have been a prime example of even if things look calm on the outside, there's a roiling that's just below the surface. The beginning of this minute is a perfect example. We see Max go over the edge and then we get something around 10 seconds of stillness, but it's not still. The horde is right behind the camera and they are coming. It's a great way to start. Much better than how we started off Thunderdome with just the lazy swooping 
Oh, you think that... I I still am on Thunderdome's case of the way that it starts off so lazily. Are you trying to say that you didn't like the didgeridoo over the top? (laughs) (laughs) I know that everybody in the 80s was crazy about the didgeridoo. I understand that. (laughs) But when you start off three out of your four movies with a vehicle chase, and then Mm. one of them starts off with some guy getting blindsided by a tire... Uh, it feels different. It's still a vehicle chase. It's just an airplane versus a <laughs> camel truck. <laughs> They're both vehicles. An old man chasing a toddler on a playground is still technically a chase, but it's not as thrilling as, you know. <laughs> hey, if you cut every second. <laughs> there you go. That's the secret. I think that would be entertaining. I'd like to see someone try that. I'm sure it's to out the, there. To the soundtrack of a heartbeat, getting faster and faster and faster. And we're not sure whose it is. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call up Margaret Sixel and be like, hey, can you help us out with this editing? And she'd be like, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Give me a ring in five years. I'm still <laughs> recovering from the last time. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, I'm actually reminded of the fact that George was, I think when we were doing Mad Max the, uh, Fury the second time, he was watching the Bourne films. Mm-hmm. And he was particularly watching the green grass films. And I think he was sublimating that into his idea of how it was all going to work with the object of actually making the action able to be followed as opposed to just editing around and trying to make it make sense. Mm. Definitely appreciate that. Yeah, that was actually a colossal effort on his and Margie's part, trying to make it all make sense. Mm. Never lost at any time. Anyway, but not now because we're stopped. (laughs) Yep, so we have effectively reached the end of the minute with Max doing his best to move away from the wreck. He doesn't have a rock that he can hide behind and he doesn't have the help of a trusty dog to distract anybody. He is alone at this point and it's very unfortunate for him, but we'll see what happens to him on Monday. I'm sure Mark, it's been great having you. Thank you. I I enjoy being a resource. There's lots of things I haven't told you. That's off air. I'll unplug the microphone. But uh, it's been fun. Thank you for having me. (laughs) As you mentioned on Monday, you've done some work with 2000 AD on some Judge Dredd comics. You've been working your hand on storyboards, everything from Star Wars to MCU movies. And you are popping around on social media every so often. So if people wanted to find you, I'm sure they could find your efforts more so than you if they want to track you down. Yes. I'm not telling anybody where I live. (laughs) You say, please, please don't give anybody your address. We'd rather not be responsible for anything that comes of that (laughs) yes don't worry i'm just down the road from a police station it should be fine (laughs) as for us we are going to come back on monday max is going to do his best to put some distance between himself and the flipped interceptor but the war boys have other plans in mind for him and they bring him to the citadel to be how should i put this processed The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Bautista of DanielBautista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. 
Thank you for joining us for Minute 3 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.